You can turn to the end of the Scriptures, near the end, to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible at home, there is a black Bible that's in front of you, a pew Bible, and we'd love to give that to you as a gift today if you don't have one at home or maybe you lost it or uh, whatever it may be. That is our gift to you today. We'd love for you to take that. Our passage is printed for us in the bulletin as well. We're beginning a new series today. So if you're coming in today for the first time, this is a good place to start with us. We believe in going through the Scriptures as they are given to us. And we're going to be studying a book of 2 Timothy. Now you may wonder why, uh, why start with 2 Timothy when there's a 1 Timothy uh, before it. And the answer to that is a couplefold. Uh, I wanted to do 2 Timothy um, because the first Timothy focuses a lot on church structures, and there's a good chance that in the new year we're going to be looking at the book of Acts together and talking about the church as a theme. And so I wanted to spread that out a little bit for the future. But also because in Second Timothy we have these four chapters, and they are so relevant to what we are experiencing now. As Paul comes to the end of his life, he is wanting to impress certain things upon Timothy, and they are remarkably the same things that we need to hear as we exist in the environment that we exist in right now. And more of that will be clear as we go along. But I found in reading this over and over again, this whole book, a great encouragement for our time. Second Timothy uh, is very different from First Timothy. Second Timothy uh, even though there's a couple of the same themes, it's at a vastly different point in Paul's life. Paul wrote Second and First Timothy to his protege, uh, young Timothy. And I, I preached a few weeks ago on, uh, on Paul in, in, in Acts uh, when he's preaching a great sermon and people are coming to faith and he's reasoning in the synagogues. And it's a very powerful moment. And you've got to realize as we start this book that nothing could be further from that in Paul's ministry right now. Paul is in prison. He's at the end of his life. This is his second Roman imprisonment. And if tradition is correct, and I think that it probably is, Paul is found in the Mamertine prison. You can picture an underground cave with one hole in the ceiling that provides a little light and a little air. He is underground right now. Paul is lonely and depressed. Many have left him. We'll find out in this book. Demas, Crescens, Alexander, even Titus have left him. Some for good reasons, some for not so good reasons. But Paul is alone. And the book ends very sadly with him saying, please come to me, Timothy, and bring me a coat. I'm cold. And we don't actually know if Timothy made it in time before Paul's death. But in the midst of that dark cave, end of his life, feeling deserted, he pens this beautiful letter to Timothy. And it's tender. And it's beautiful. And if I were to summarize it for you, what we see Paul basically saying in this book is, keep it going. Keep it going. Keep my ministry 
going. Keep the Gospel of Jesus Christ going. Keep the fight against false teaching going. Keep going amidst the discouragement of people leaving the faith. Keep going. If he were writing today, he might say to us as we look in on 2 Timothy as a little bit removed from time, the discouragement of some of your evangelical leaders being morally compromised or leaving the faith, but you keep going. The fact that the church has been disrupted by a virus and by politics and all of these things, and there's so much reason to be at each other's throats, but I want you to keep going. When there appears to be so much lack of faith, so much worldliness, so much outward appearance of success, so much to be discouraged about. Keep going. And I want that encouragement for all of us, and I want that encouragement for myself. That's, I think, partly why I've dived into this book. This is called a pastoral epistle, meaning it is directed at Timothy, the shepherd, the pastor. And I want us, I want to direct some of this towards us as the shepherds and the elders and the pastors of this church as well, as we need the encouragement, keep going. But it's not just for us. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written a letter the way that he did. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, if he were just writing a letter to Timothy, he would, not, he would have gotten away with the formalities, right? Why are there the formalities at the beginning? Because he expects this to be read, to be studied in Ephesus, where he is sending this to where Timothy is the pastor. And so I want us to look at this message together as a public thing as well. We're going to look at the first seven verses. Let me read them for us. They're found in your bulletin as well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as, I, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. This will be new to some of you, but I know for a fact that a number of you in this room are listening to a hot uh, new podcast that's been making the rounds, and actually at one point was number four in the whole country, even though it's a Christian podcast. And the name of the podcast is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about what that podcast is about, and I have some nuanced thoughts on it, but it's a production of Christianity Today, and uh, for those who don't know, just broadly speaking, it is the story of a church in Seattle that has risen and fallen, one of the biggest churches in America, and it also, as a theme, explores the fallenness of leaders, of Christian leaders. On a recent episode, I thought that 
there was a profound quote from one of the people that they interviewed. Ted Olson, who is the editorial director at Christianity Today, he described his experience of being at Christianity Today when all the news of the fallen leaders, the fallen pastors kept coming in. And he remembers the time when, uh, if these names don't mean anything to you, that's okay. They don't, they don't need to necessarily. But they're big, somewhat big names in Christian circles. He remembers when Ravi Zacharias, an apologist, was found out to be morally compromised. And then within 24 hours, another big name, Bill Hybels, who is the pastor of one of the biggest churches in America, uh, was also found to be morally compromised. And he said within that 24 hours that started this unbroken month where every day I would receive this news of people falling away, being compromised, all kinds of things. And I love what he said about that. I say all of that only to say this. What he said was so profound in reflecting on that month and as it continued on. He said this, I didn't lose faith in God, but... I kept asking myself, are there actual Christians who believe this stuff? Or, is Christianity made up of those who grift and the ones who are grifted? Meaning, the ones who deceive and the ones who are deceived. I didn't lose my faith in God, but it made me wonder about the sincerity of faith. In people. And then he says how he got out of that hole is by remembering this person and that person and that mentor and his own wife and looking at their faith and drawing encouragement. And that's exactly what Paul is doing at the beginning of this letter. He says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. In the darkness, the literal darkness of prison, in the desertion, when it seems like the Christian leaders, Demas, Alexander, Hymenaeus, Titus, they've left me, they're doing other things, or they've left the faith, and I am sitting here alone, and I've given my life to making this church established in all these parts of the Gentile nations, and I'm sitting here wondering about its efficacy. I'm wondering if it worked. And I am reminded of your, Timothy, your sincere faith. Timothy's faith was sincere. And one of the reasons why I wanted us to study this book is in a time when it feels like there's all of this movement away as leaders are disgraced and as we wonder both about that, but also for ourselves. And we think, well, maybe, maybe I'll fall away. Maybe I don't have a sincere faith. What is a sincere faith? Why would Paul commend Timothy for that? And what makes it true? That's what I want to talk about today. What makes faith a sincere faith? Looking at three things that Paul talks about here. Three attributes of a sincere faith that are always present. Always pointing to the fact that we have a sincere faith. And what he begins with is first, foundations. 
The three things, if you want to write them down, are foundations, feelings, and fuel. These things, three things make up this sincere faith picture that he gives us. The first one is foundations. Foundations. When Paul begins this letter, in order to, for it to be read, he starts with the foundations of the faith. What are we talking about? First, we have an apostolic faith. Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul claims the apostleship of God. It is by the will of God. He is an apostle. He is like the twelve original apostles. Even though he says elsewhere that I was one who was untimely born. So he wasn't with Jesus during his life. But later, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, he was given that vision from Jesus Christ himself. He became an apostle. And he sees himself united with Peter, James, and John, and all of the other apostles who give this world the message of Christ. An apostle just means a sent one. One who is sent by God to proclaim the good news. And we follow the news that Paul gives us. It is apostolic. Notice next, it is Christ-centered. By the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This whole apostolic message is about one thing. It's about pure life, abundant life that is found in Jesus. Jesus Himself said, I've come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Paul says, we proclaim that message. Life is found in Jesus. That is the good news. It is the apostolic message. It is Christ-centered. It is Trinitarian. Verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God the Father, Christ Jesus, the Father, the Son. Look at the very end of the passage, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not a fear. I'm with most people when I think that that letter S in spirit should be capitalized. Why? Because right before it, he says, to fan into flame, the gift of God and the Spirit is called the gift of God in other places in the Scripture. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so this whole passage has a framework of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Another foundation. This faith is both, as we have seen and witnessed this morning, generational and individual. Generational and individual. Look what he says. In verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you. Timothy was born to a Gentile, unbelieving father. But his mother and his grandmother were believers in Christ. And Paul identifies with that because he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. Paul himself sees himself in line with this message as it continues from the Old Testament into the present day. And he says, you and me, Timothy, we are part of the overlap of the ages. And our families have brought us this faith. But of course, that faith is not just found in the family, it's found in the individual because he says, I am sure this faith that dwelt in Lois and Eunice dwells in you individually. 
doesn't excuse Timothy as an individual. As we have seen today, the faith of the family that Ezra is baptized into this, this generational faith, and yet Ellie taking a step today and saying, this is my faith. It dwells not only in Nathan and Megan, but in Ellie as well. Beautiful. Why do I say all that? I say that because Paul starts the letter with those foundations in mind. And let me apply this to us in a couple of different ways. If you want to have a sincere faith, number one, you need to believe in the foundations of our faith in order to be a sincere Christian. What does that mean? It means that the message that we proclaim, that we believe, is the apostolic message. It is the one sent by God through His servants, the apostles. Their witness is reliable. Their writings are reliable and important that they reflect the plan of God's redemption which began before the foundations of the world. God the Father, Son, and Spirit together in perfect intimacy formed this plan of redemption that is accomplished in Jesus Christ alone. And life is found in Him. And that message goes out to individuals who hear it and believe and start families so that God has a nation of believing families that continue to follow God. Those are the foundations of our faith. You need to believe in the foundations in order to be a sincere Christian. I'm just going to be blunt with you. This is what it means to have faith. Is that you believe these things. But secondly, your faith needs to not be in anything else. You notice what is not on that list of foundations. Leaders. Gray Ewing is not on that list. You don't have faith in me. I am not foundational to your faith. Or an elder. Or someone that you watch on YouTube that you gain a lot of insight from. Or an apologist. Or the church that's the biggest in the nation. These are not foundational to your faith. Though we may help equip that we may be part of the story, we may be instrumental in even bringing that faith in, but we are not the faith. And so faith in leaders is a losing bet. We don't have faith in leaders. We have faith in Jesus Christ and the plan of redemption told to us by the apostles. Other things that people put their faith in. A spouse. But the spouse's faith carries the relationship. And if the spouse is struggling in their faith, then both are struggling. If the spouse loses their faith, then the other spouse loses their faith as well because their faith is not in Christ. It is in their relationship with their spouse. Maybe a season of life or a season of growth in your history can become a source of a foundation for you. If I could just get back, I really had a sincere faith when I was going to summer camp every month, every, uh, every year, over the summer. That's when I really had a sincere faith. I really had a sincere faith in college as I was surrounded by all these people and we all love Jesus and now I don't have that anymore. I really had a sincere faith when I was part of that church and I grew a lot and now I don't have that anymore. And so we can put our faith in things that are not Christ. Things change. Cultures change. Churches change. Leaders change. That's not what our faith in is in. 
A sincere faith is based in the foundations given to us in Scripture. The second thing that a sincere faith has is feelings. Feelings always accompany a sincere faith. It is true that faith means that we believe certain things. But that belief does not mean that we are not affected by that belief. Some people say facts don't care about your feelings. That, am I doing some marriage counseling here this morning? Maybe I am. You know, facts don't care about your feelings, right? What matters about Christianity is that it is true. And that is true. It does matter that Christianity is true, but it also matters how it affects us. Do you see how Paul relates to Timothy? He says, he relates to him with love. My beloved child. My beloved child. That's an upgrade from 1 Timothy, by the way. In 1 Timothy, he called him my true spiritual son. He's like a little mentee. I think of you as my spiritual son. And now he says, you're my beloved child. It's tenderness. The feeling is mutual. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. Timothy wept. The last parting of Paul. He wept over his father in the faith leaving there's love there is thanksgiving i thank my god whom i serve verse three i thank god paul's always doing this at the beginning of his letters it's easy to think of it as a throwaway oh i thank god thank god you know and now i'm going to get to the real message that's not true this is god's word and You need to see that everything that Paul does has a context of thanksgiving. Relentlessly, Paul was grateful for what is, not what could be. He looks at this situation in Ephesus, and even in the darkness, he's thanking God for Timothy and for his faith. There's also joy. He longs to see Timothy in verse 4, so that his joy may be filled. Can't you just feel the smile of Paul as he writes this letter. He loves Timothy. He loves his sincere faith and it is mutual. Christianity is not just a doctrine to be believed. It is something that affects our affections. And you know, that's another way that we doubt other people's sincerity and we doubt our own sincerity of faith. It's because We wonder, has this truly affected me? Because faith that is sincere does get to our affections. There are foundations. There are feelings. And then finally, there is fuel. The thing that will make our faith sincere is the fuel that God Himself gives us in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we have that, increasingly, we have no fear we do still have fear, but increasingly, what that's replaced with is power, love, and self-control. A summary of those things might be that we have the ability to do the right things even though they are hard. 
Look at them with me for a moment. He says, Timothy, you have power. You have power. And it's not your natural power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, Timothy needed power. It's in a very hard church context. And we look at the things that we know about Timothy. It's not very flattering. right? I mean, I'm sure Timothy's more godly than I am. And uh, he probably would have said, oh, my strength is made perfect. You know, his strength is made perfect in weakness. But if it were me, I would not like the legacy that the Bible gives me if I'm Timothy. All right, here's what we know about Timothy. He was young. So young and acted so young that he was having trouble with people respecting him. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy, don't let people discount you because of your youth. So he was young and he acted young. He was weak. In body, he was sickly. He had stomach issues, okay, we're told in the scriptures. Listen to what this is. First Corinthians 16. This is kind of funny to me. Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, make sure you put Timothy at ease. Don't despise him. He's kind of weak. Timothy was not a powerful person. He was a weak person. And yet, Paul's coming and saying, your strength does not come from yourself. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And that is the best place to be, is to be weak in your own strength and strong in the Lord. This is what God's always doing. He's providing power. Listen to this quote from Oswald Chambers. So good. God can achieve His purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because of their unusual dependence on Him, made possible the unique display of His power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. The world is made up of nobodies and somebodies in a worldly sense, and God uses both of them. The nobodies, He shows His own power through their weakness. And the somebodies, He empties them of their strength. You think of Samson, who was so strong and he had all this strength, but he only used it for the Lord at the end when he was emptied of that strength. And you can see a more, uh, more of a contrast between Paul and Timothy himself. Paul is unusually gifted. Paul is, has a large pedigree. Paul has a towering intellect. Paul has the ability to write and to plant churches. And he has grit. And he's made it through lots of things in order to establish the church. And what does Paul say about everything that he has and everything that is accomplished? I take all that. And I count it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He's emptied of his power so that God was made powerful in him but Timothy is weak and Timothy in his weakness needs to find the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit gives power also love this is not the kind of love that talked about earlier where Timothy my beloved child this is the kind of love that is self-sacrificial love the laying down of the life that's why it is hard and the Holy Spirit empowers you to love Self-control, meaning self-discipline. This, this word means a level-headedness. This is 
not being carried away by everything, but knowing and being confident in what God is showing you. And the Spirit gives us that power and that love and self-control and it increasingly casts out fear. Because when we are afraid, when we are timid, then it's easy to do the wrong thing. Fear takes away all of these things. Fear takes away our power. Because then we just focus on our own insecurity. Fear takes away our ability to love because then we're just selfish. We don't want to help other people because it's going to take away from us. Fear takes away our self-control. Because when we're afraid and we're timid, we want to act however will provide us the most security. And we act in a self-interested way and maybe irrationally. And so he says, you don't have that in the Holy Spirit. You have power, love, and self-control. Where do those things come from? They do not come from us. They come from the Holy Spirit. The flame, the gift of God, which is through us through the laying on of hands. He's talking there about Timothy's ordination, but also his coming into faith. Because here's the thing. All of those things, whether they exist in a big, great measure or a small measure exists in every believer. We all have the Spirit. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. It's not something extra that gets applied later that enables you to do great things. You already have the Spirit, which is why what he tells him is not make sure, Timothy, that you get the Spirit. What he says is fan it into flame. You already have it. You already have the spark, but it needs to become a fire. When I build a fire pit night at our house, haven't done it in a few months, obviously, my boys, my three boys asked me the question, are you building a fire tonight or are you building a bonfire? I don't know the technical distinction uh, between a fire and a bonfire, but I know what they mean. They're saying, are you going to just build some embers and a small amount? Or are you going to make that thing as big as you can in the little fire pit that we have? And I usually, nine times out of ten, tell them exactly what they want to hear. It's going to be a bonfire. Because why not? You're already going to smell smoky. You're already, you're already doing the work, right? So make it big. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> Any pyromaniacs in the represent... My boys know that to increase a fire, you have to increase one of three things. Heat, air, or fuel. And if you do those things, any one of them or all three of them, the fire will get bigger. Usually we don't have access to external heat. right? So it's fuel and air that we use to make the fire bigger. And so we lay more fuel, more branches and we lay them in such a way where the air vents in, and then we blow on that flame to make it bigger, turning the fire into a bonfire. Because why not? If you're building it, then make it with more light and more heat and more energy. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you have a sincere faith. I see what's inside you. I see the generational. I know you believe the message. 
but fan it into flame. What you need and what your church needs is more light and more heat and more energy. And He would say the same thing to us, for those of us who believe in this context, in this place where God has put us. I know our sincere faith, but God is telling us to fan it into flame, to bring more light, more heat, more energy to this neighborhood, to our families, to this city. How do we do that? It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to see the beauty of Paul's metaphor here where he says, fan into flame the gift of God. Because the Spirit means wind, breath. That's what the Spirit means in both Testaments. The Old Testament, ruach. The, the Hebrew word, it's onomatopoeia. It is what it sounds like. The Ruach of God. The Spirit of God. And then in the New Testament, the Numa, The Spirit of God. Just like our lungs. It is a breath. It is expired out. It is what God does when He presents Himself as the Spirit He breathes onto the flame. And some of you I know feel like and maybe confess today that all you have is a spark. And you're wondering if the spark is enough to have a sincere faith. All I have is a little bit. I don't seem very strong in the Lord. I don't seem capable of overcoming sin. I don't know if I care about God and I come in and out of it and all I have is a spark. Listen. Hear God's encouragement first to you this morning. A spark is still a fire. This is the point in the great classic work, The Smoldering Flax, a Puritan wrote that a fire, the smoldering flax, the Scripture says, God will not put out. The bent reed He will not break. If you are struggling and you feel like all you have is a spark, a spark, by definition, is still a fire. It still has light. It still has heat. It still has energy. A spark is still a fire. And every bonfire begins with a spark. But what, for it to become a bonfire, what must happen is that God Himself must fuel it. That the Spirit is poured out on us. And how do we receive that? How do we understand that happening? Well, we just need to ask ourselves this simple question. It is not rocket science. If the Spirit of God is what fans us into flame, if makes us sparks, makes the sparks into a bonfire. If that is true, then ask yourself, where does the Spirit dwell? Where is the Spirit? The Spirit is in the Word. The Spirit gives us the Word. The Word is an exhalation, an expiration of God's truth. This was written as we already said, by the apostles who were carried along, Scripture tells us, by the Holy Spirit. This is Spirit-breathed. And so, where you find the Spirit is you find Him in the Word. Where else do you find the Spirit? You find Him in prayer. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit groans for us on our behalf with words we can't even understand. The Spirit is found in prayer. The Spirit is found in the people of God. 
where there is the people of God, the Spirit of God is present and dwells with us. The Spirit is here this morning. The Spirit is with you. When you go to your gospel communities or your midweek gathering this week, that's where the Spirit is. The Spirit is at the table as the Spirit takes what Christ has done and applies it to our hearts and increases our faith. And in the same way that you increase a fire by adding any one of the elements, heat, air, or fuel. If you add to your life the place where God's Spirit dwells, the fire will grow. And just like when you're building a fire, at times it feels like it is sputtering and useless and it feels like it's not going to catch on. And you might be in that place for a little while. And you know that if you've ever built a fire. And you know that if you've ever come to God's Word or spent extended time in prayer or been consistent to church or come to His table and wondered, is this doing anything? And there's a feeling that this will not work. But you come to the same things that God promises to bless. And it isn't rock and science, but it is hard sometimes. But here's where God's Spirit dwells. And He will take the sparks of our faith and turn them into the bonfires that Paul here desires for us. Let's pray together.